Hey, good morning, church. I want to wish you and yours a very happy and very meaningful Resurrection Sunday. I think we're going to remember this particular Easter for years to come, don't you? I mean, we're going to remember this as the Easter when we couldn't gather with family and friends, as the Easter when we couldn't gather as a church, as the Easter when if you actually took the risk and ventured an Easter egg hunt for the kids, each egg had to be six feet apart from the others. But we're also going to remember this as the Easter when we celebrated the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead in the midst of a viral pandemic that saw not only our nation, but the entire world held in the grip of the fear of death. Nothing has provoked more fear and public upheaval in America in the last 50 years as has the COVID-19 pandemic. And as the virus spreads, uncertainty and fear bordering on panic have rocked nearly every facet of life. A March 14th Harris Poll survey of adults in the United States revealed that over half of the respondents said that they feared that they would die of COVID-19. NBC Channel 4 in New York City interviewed Dr. Evelyn Graver, a doctor treating some of the most serious COVID-19 patients at North Shore University Hospital on Long Island. Dr. Graver told NBC New York that the last 10 days have been some of the saddest and most harrowing of her entire career. While documenting parts of her workday, which more and more frequently have featured 12 to 16 hour shifts inside the coronavirus unit. She said that just upon entering the area, you can smell fear. You can smell death. She added that coming to work and waiting around now has an entirely different feel than ever before. And that feeling, Dr. Graver said, is one of helplessness among her colleagues with little that they can do to help the seriously ill patients in their unit. A BBC article titled The Fear of Coronavirus is Changing Our Psychology observed that rarely has the threat of disease occupied so much of our thinking. For weeks, almost every newspaper has stories about the coronavirus pandemic on its front page. Radio and TV programs have back-to-back coverage on the latest death tolls. And depending on who you follow, social media platforms are filled with frightening statistics, practical advice, or gallows humor. Most of those who have died of the virus across our nation have died alone, separated from their loved ones. One COVID-19 patient shared, I couldn't sleep. Anxiety invaded the room. Nightmares came. Death prowled the ward. I was afraid of dying without being able to cling on to the hands of my family and friends. Despair overcame me. Fear. Despair. The smell of death. Death itself. The fear of death, the Bible says, is a kind of pervasive persistent, perpetual slavery. 
At Easter, we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. But before the resurrection, there was, of course, a death. Jesus Christ came to die. But why? Why is it that Jesus had to die? This morning's scripture text provides one angle on the answer to that question. Why did Jesus have to die? What was what was accomplished by his death? So if you have a Bible handy wherever you are, uh, just turn to Hebrews 2, verses 14 to 15. Hebrews 2, 14 to 15. Just two verses. And this morning, I, I simply want to walk with you through these two verses that uh, have so much to say about uh, this question, why did Jesus have to die? And I'm reading this morning from the New Living Translation. Here it is. Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. Well, let's begin with that first statement. Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son of God also became flesh and blood. You know, the clear witness of Scripture is that Jesus Christ is eternal God in human flesh. The theological word for God the Son becoming flesh and blood is incarnation. And regarding the incarnation, the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Philippi, Being in very nature God, he, that is God's Son, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. The story is told of a little boy lying fearful in his bed as a storm raged outside. Uh, The winds were howling, the rain was hammering on the roof. Loud claps of thunder, deafening claps of thunder indicated that the lightning was striking very near. And when his fear turned to terror and he couldn't take it any longer, he, he cried out for his mother and she quickly arrived at his bedroom and, and entered his doorway. Mama, I'm scared, he said. To which she replied, Sweetheart, you're, you're safe in your bed, and you know that God is always with you. And in a wistful, shaking voice, he answered back, I know, Mama, but right now I need a God with skin on. In Jesus Christ, we see God with skin on. He partook of flesh and blood, shared in our humanity, became one of us. The prophet Isaiah saw it ahead of time. 700 years before Christ appeared, he wrote, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel. It means God with us. 
I was captured this week by something in an article by Daniel Harrell in the latest issue of Christianity Today magazine, and he, he said, we often speak of God with us at Christmas. God with us as a precious child in a manger is preferable to God with us as a despised man hung to die. But the manger is not the central symbol of our faith. The empty tomb isn't either. Christians decided early on that the sign of their faith would be a cross. We hang on to our crosses even at Easter because it is in the hard places of life where Christ's presence with us proves most holy. I was struck by that because the author understood the the cross to be not only a symbol of Christ's death, but also a symbol of the presence of Christ among us, with us, in our own times of suffering, which it is. David, in Psalm 23, one of the most familiar and loved of all the Psalms, views himself as a sheep and God as his shepherd and says, even though I walk through the darkest valley, the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. The late Jewish author Elie Wiesel, Holocaust survivor and author of two books, recounted a day in the concentration camp when three Jews were hanged publicly, one of them just a young boy. And someone nearby asked the timeless question that so many people have asked at such a moment, where is God? Where is God? Wiesel paused, observed the victims hanging from the gallows, and answered, There. He is there. See, Wiesel understood that God is with us in our living. He's with us in our dying. And at every moment in between, he is with us even in our darkest moments, in our deepest suffering. In Christ, God took on human flesh. He is God with us as one of us. Our text continues, For only as a human could he die. To the church in Philippi, the Apostle Paul described both the incarnation of God's Son in the person of Jesus Christ and and the intention of God's Son in human form. When he wrote, And being found in human form, he, that is Jesus, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, I don't know of any other translation of the Bible that captures this nuance in verse 14 so well and so simply that only as a human could he die. Only as a human could he die. It's worth pausing and reflecting on what the writer is saying. It's important that the language we use in regard to the death of Christ is clear. Uh, You'll sometimes hear someone say, God died on the cross, and yet no verse of the Bible specifically declares that God himself died on the cross. Scripture certainly and decisively declares Jesus to be the, the Son of God, but it stops short of making the unequivocal statement that God died, and we should ask, why? Why is that? There are at least two reasons. The first reason is, that God, by his nature, in his essential being, is immortal. 
for example, in 1 Timothy 1.17, Paul praises God, saying, To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. And at the close of the same letter in chapter 6, verse 16, Paul again asserts that God alone, God alone has immortality. God himself is immortal. You've heard the question, is there anything God cannot do? And the answer is apparently so. He cannot die. God had to become a man in order to be able to do so. The second reason that it's misleading to say that God died is that when the New Testament writers used the word God with a capital G, they were frequently and almost exclusively referring to God the Father in distinction from the other two persons of the Trinity, God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. For example, in John 3.16, Jesus said, God so loved the world that he gave his Son. And in these two verses, we are considering this morning that the repeated pronoun, he, refers not to God the Father, but to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. The New Testament writers speak in unison and with clarity in saying that the person who died on the cross was not the Father, but the Son, Jesus Christ. And yet we should never think of Jesus as a kind of independent third party working in isolation from the other two persons of the triune Godhead. In his second letter to the church in Corinth, Paul affirmed that in Christ, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. It's this reality that we recall. It's this reality that we celebrate when we partake in communion, that in the person of Jesus Christ, God the Son became incarnate, became flesh and blood, shared our humanity so that he could die for us and in our place. In the middle of verse 14, we come to the first of two reasons that Jesus had to die. Specifically, the writer says that only by dying, only by dying, could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. The Apostle John wrote in 1 John 3.8 that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. What was the power of death that the devil possessed? Jesus said of the devil or Satan that he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. See, Satan's primary interest is is not in killing outright, resulting in physical death, but in damning, in condemning, resulting in spiritual death and eternal separation from God. John Piper wrote that Satan much prefers that his followers have a long and happy lives to mock suffering saints and to hide the horrors of hell. See, Satan's one lethal weapon is the power to deceive. His power to bring about the damnation of human beings centers on the lies he tells and the sin that he inspires. And the the chief lie of the devil is that to serve and exalt yourself is much more desirable than to serve and exalt God. 
that sin is preferable to obedience, and the only thing that results in anyone's damnation is unforgiven sin. Unforgiven sin pays off in death. If that weapon could be taken out of Satan's hand, if it could be removed from his paws, as it were, he he would no longer have the power of eternal death. When the writer says that Jesus came to break the power of the devil, the word he uses means to render it inactive, to neutralize it, to completely eliminate its effect. Well, how did he do that? Go with me to Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 to 15, where Paul writes, You were dead because of your sins, and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ, for he forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. Notice with me, first of all, that Paul tells us that we were dead and that the reason for our death was sin. The product of a sinful nature in rebellion against God. But then God came along and raised us out of spiritual death through Christ. Through what Christ accomplished at the cross, God forgave all of our sins. Well, by what means? Here's the truth about you. You you had a record. You had a rap sheet, a long one. It included every sin you had ever committed, the sins you're committing right now, and every sin you will ever commit, all of it. God, the righteous judge, took that rap sheet and canceled it, removed every charge against you. How? By nailing it to the cross. The Apostle Peter said that Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, on the cross. Satan has no more power over you if you have trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sin. Because Christ, through his death, made payment in full for all of it. And notice the outcome. In this way, Paul said, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. Who are they? Satan and his demons. Satan and his nasty posse. He, he broke the power, their power, at the cross. Now think about this with me. Nowhere in the New Testament is it written that Christ rose for our sins. Always it is that Christ died for our sins. It's the cross that, that's at the very core of the gospel message. It was by his blood that God's wrath against sin was satisfied. And by that same blood, we have been redeemed, we have been justified, we've been reconciled to God. It was by his death and not his resurrection that our sins were dealt with 
But you might ask, wasn't it by his resurrection that Christ conquered death? The answer is no. It was by his death that he broke the power of the devil who had the power of death. Well, what then of the resurrection that we celebrate today? The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead served to vindicate the Christ whom humanity had rejected. To declare with power that he is the Son of God. Publicly to confirm that his sin-bearing death had been effective for the forgiveness of sins and that God had accepted the sacrifice that Jesus Christ had offered. And now here's the second reason Jesus had to die. It's in verse 15. Only in this way, only in this way could he be set, could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. I love the way that Eugene Peterson rendered this verse in his paraphrase of the Bible that we know as the message. He put it this way, that he, that is Jesus, freed all who cower through life, scared to death of death. Scared to death of death. You know, psychologists have a clinical name for the fear of death. It's thanatophobia. And there's a variety of reasons that people say they fear death. One is the loss of control. The the act of dying is utterly outside anyone's control. And those who fear that loss of control may go to extreme lengths to hold aging and sickness and death as far from them as possible. They're the ones who say with Groucho Marx, I intend to live forever or die trying. And they do die trying. The Greek philosopher Epicurus said that it's possible to provide security against other ills, but as far as death is concerned, we men live in a city without walls. A city without walls, of course, is a defenseless city. We humans are not immune to physical death. The ratio is persuasive. One out of every one human beings dies. Others fear the process of dying, uh, the process of dying more than death itself. Actor and director Woody Allen said, I'm not afraid to die. I just don't want to be there when it happens. Others simply live in fear of the fact of death itself. And author Savannah Brown expressed it well when she wrote, The fear of gone. The fear of nothing at all, of of what happens to me, of I'm the main character and the story will crumble if I'm not there to see it through. But most are terrified of what lies beyond death. And these are the ones who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death, who cower through life scared to death of death. When you're facing death, you, you have to walk that walk alone. Most people have an inherent instinct of what is true, that beyond the grave there will, there will be an accounting to a higher power. The Bible says that it is appointed to man to die once, and after that, the judgment. See, Jesus died so that you no longer have to live in fear 
of death so that you no longer have to live in fear of judgment. Jesus Christ, God's Son, became human, took on human flesh and blood so that he could die your death and bear your judgment. At the cross, Jesus absorbed the wrath of God that was God's appropriate response to your sin. Your sin has been paid for. You you can receive forgiveness today and know that you no longer have to live under the tyranny that is the fear of death. And when you do, you'll experience the freedom to truly live. As we close this morning, I'd I'd like to read Isaiah chapter 53. And as I read, maybe you'll put down whatever is in your hands. Maybe you'll close your eyes and reflect on who Jesus is, why he came, what he did for you, and how you'll respond to him. Isaiah 53. Who has believed our message? To whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root in dry ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him. We looked the other way. He was despised and we didn't care. Yet it was our weakness he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We've left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short in midstream. But he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong and had never deceived anyone. But he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. But it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. He will enjoy a long life, and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous. For he will bear all their sins. And I will give him the honors of a victorious soldier because he exposed himself to death. He was counted among the rebels. 
He bore the sins of many and interceded for rebels. This morning I'm inviting you on Easter Sunday 2020 to trust in Christ, uh, to be freed from the tyranny of the fear of death, uh, to have your sins forgiven, to be declared righteous, to be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. No greater thing that could happen on Easter Sunday than that you would pass from death to life. It's my prayer for you. Have a great Easter. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you, Lord Jesus, by your death broke the power of Satan, neutralized it, eliminated it, canceled it. That by your death you canceled the the written record of our sin, of our failure to meet your righteous standard, that you nailed it to the cross, that you took it away. Not that we were acquitted of any of it. We were 100% guilty. But you bore our judgment. You died in our place. You absorbed the wrath of God for us. And now we can live free. And we have hope, not only for this life, but for all of eternity. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for going to the cross. And I pray for my friends today, wherever they are, as they're viewing this message, that they might make this the day that they trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and begin a whole new life. Not a life of slavery, but a life of freedom in Christ. And I pray it in that name, the name of Jesus, our Savior, our Substitute, our soon-coming King. Amen.